Let's turn in our Bibles to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, every once in a while on Sunday evenings, I deal with something topically rather than in the typical expository fashion. Well, even then it's expository. But um, it is our habit to take books of the Bible, portions of books, work our way through them. But uh, for pastoral reasons, sometimes I think that it's wise to deal with something in a topical fashion. So over these next several Sunday evenings, we hope to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. And I would like to begin this evening with objections to the resurrection. Also, please forgive me that I'm doing something else unusual using a manuscript, but I'm hoping to work on these more later and to make something of them that can be used in other settings. Let's pray briefly. Our Father and our God, as we turn to this passage and as we think about this grand and great theme, we know that we are dealing with the center of history, the turning point of the ages, and that there is nothing more important in all of life than this. Therefore, we ask that you would strengthen your people's faith and resolve to present the resurrected Christ to the community in which we live and to the world around us and that those who may be among us today who are lost and undone would see their need of a Redeemer and trust in Christ, who alone is the Savior of sinners. We pray through Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, the backdrop to our discussions over these next week, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, I hope that you will focus with me over these next several Sunday evenings on the theme of the resurrection of Jesus. No Christian will doubt the significance of that theme. Paul tells us that without it we have no hope and are still in our sins and that our faith is vain. <clears throat> Will you focus with me in these sessions, particularly on the historical facts of the resurrection of Jesus? That is where we want to zero in for the purpose of these Sundays. Before we take a look at the biblical teaching on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, I want to take time tonight to look at the common objections that have been raised against the resurrection of Jesus. I do not say that all of these views are now in vogue. Some may not be at all. But it is an amazing thing to me how persistent some of these views are 
And it is also amazing to me how old ideas, once debunked, continue to crop up. You might think that we are going about this backward. You might think that we should start with the biblical data and then deal with the objections after that. There are advantages to that approach. I want, however, to clear the air right away with regard to the objections to the resurrection of Jesus. And since I know that you have much of the biblical data in hand, I think that there is some advantage to going this route first. At least I thought it might catch your interest. Before we go into this, let me say a word about defending the faith, about apologetics. I think that it's extremely important to engage in the defense of the faith. I think that it is very important to answer objections that unbelief has raised against the resurrection of Jesus, for example. But I do not think that in answering those objections, the unbeliever will just give up his presuppositions. That is, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates his heart. You see, the real problem when dealing with these objections, I am convinced, is not intellectual fundamentally at all. That is, there is not neutral reasoning, some common ground on which we can agree, the believer and the unbeliever to the end, that we can have uh, some commonality in our differing viewpoints. I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a fact. My unbelieving friend does not. So are we at an impasse? Well, we might be at an impasse were it not for one great reality, and that great reality is the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. I think that it is important to point out the folly of unbelief and the wrong reasoning of unbelief in this matter of the resurrection. But I believe more that the Holy Spirit of God can work to show a man that it is his sin that is behind his unbelief that the real reason an unbeliever will not accept the Bible's account of the resurrection is essentially moral and not intellectual. That neither the unbeliever nor the believer is neutral is attested in the Bible itself in many ways. And it is sometimes refreshing to see how unbelievers will admit to it. I was reminded of this a while back when reading Rudolf Bultmann's review of J. Gresham Machen's The Origin of Paul's Religion which, just for your information, is my favorite book outside of the Bible. Bultmann shows respect for Machen's scholarship, but he says in the opening paragraph that he cannot accept the viewpoint of a supernaturalistic explanation of the Apostle Paul. Well, someone says, you cannot prove to someone that Jesus rose from the dead. Perhaps not. But what we can do is show that the naturalistic explanations for the New Testament claim that Jesus rose from the dead are inadequate. And this is important to do. If you know the debate surrounding the proper approaches to defense of the faith, apologetics, I'm thoroughly committed to the Vantillian point of view. However, Vantill thought that the kind of thing that Machen did in such books as The Origin of Paul's Religion or The Virgin Birth of Christ were important. In those books, Machen showed that the claims of the critics do not hold up under investigation and show their internal inconsistencies. Now, the point of this exercise, though important with unbelievers, has greater purpose for you, believers, in strengthening our faith in the truth as it is in Christ. Even though we are ultimately convinced of the truth by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, it is very strengthening for faith to see critics answered and biblical data explained.
the objections to the resurrection of Jesus have been many and varied. Many of them were especially popular in the 19th century as destructive forms of biblical criticism became dominant. Many of these objections are not held today, but each of them, as I have said, has a certain stubbornness about them. And they tend to find a way of of rearing themselves despite the answers that have been given. You can find an excellent treatment of these in many, many places. I suggest the shorter writings of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Warfield points out that the objections are of three classes. I'm actually going to add a fourth. Our third point tonight will be the fourth class that I add. The theories are commonly known, uh, and they are as follows. The first objection, the first theory, is that the original disciples of Jesus were deceivers. This theory put forward the notion that the disciples really did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but that they claimed that he did despite that fact. In other words, they lied. Even the most extreme critics have generally believed that this is untenable. So this body of disheartened disciples plotted to deceive the world into thinking that Jesus rose when in fact they knew that he did not. The greatest moral teachers of the world put on a charade about the greatest moral teacher of the world by lying straight out. They stole the body and then they went out into the world willingly suffering and dying for the claim that Christ rose from the dead. Well, this is absurd. No, the disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we need to ask the question more seriously, where did that conviction Uh, come from? From where did they get this conviction? Leads us to theory two. The second theory is that the original disciples were deceived. They were deceived. The New Testament claims that the disciples and others were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. How could all of these people have been deceived? Uh, Could they not have gone to the tomb and found his body? Well, it is claimed that his body was thrown on a dunghill and his body could not be found. But the New Testament documents are clear that he was buried, that his tomb was known, and that the resurrection occurred on the third day. If Christ did not rise, how did the tomb become empty? Did his enemies empty the tomb and not produce the body when the resurrection was claimed? Or at least show proof that it had been taken? Well, one answer that's given to all of this is the so-called swoon theory. It's been claimed that Jesus was not really dead, but swooned, and the cool tomb revived him. This was the view of the great German scholar Friedrich Schleiermacher, whose influence to this day is very, very, very great. But we have the New Testament documents telling us that there was eyewitness testimony to his death and to the resurrected Jesus. Warfield quotes the critic Strauss. This is David Friedrich Strauss, the great liberal. So this is no Bible believer. He references Strauss who said this, It would have been impossible thus to mistake a wounded man dying from exhaustion for the Messiah of Jewish expectations, or then to magnify this into a resurrection from the dead. To which Warfield also adds, A dying man in hiding the center of Christianity's life, This filled with enthusiasm and death-defying courage, the founders of the church, besides all which the hypothesis makes the apostles either knaves or fools. 
neither of which, as the skeptics admit, is possible truth. Hence, they themselves unite with us in rejecting as wholly absurd this dream of Schleiermacher. Well, then as we ask the question from where did the disciples get this idea, the most popular viewpoint that is still found out there is the vision hypothesis or hypotheses because it takes various forms. The disciples and others had visions and hallucinations and thought Jesus rose from the dead, it is claimed. Renan's well-known theory is that Mary Magdalene loved Jesus so that in her grief she thought she saw Jesus and the disciples believed her and they also then thought they saw Jesus themselves. But then there's the empty tomb. The disciples, moreover, did not expect the resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament makes that plain. There is no time for myth to grow. The third day stares us in the face. This is not 50 years later or 100 years later. This is three days later. And Paul tells us there were over 500 who saw the risen Lord at one time. Warfield asks, was all Palestine inhabited by Franciscans of Assisi? Well, let's summarize more carefully the problems with the vision theory. Machen noted that the vision theory really means that the Christian church is based on a pathological experience, and if there had been a good neurologist available, there would never have been a Christian church. Is the Christian church rooted in a pathological experience, or is it rooted in an historical event, the greatest historical event ever to have taken place? Machen and others point out the, in relation to this vision hypothesis, first of all, that the appearances were bodily appearances. The disciples touched Jesus. They conversed with him. They ate with him. This does not coincide with a vision hypothesis at all. Secondly, the appearances were both in Jerusalem and in Galilee. The first appearances were in Jerusalem, which is very significant. Both of these features are denied by the vision hypothesis. The disciples and others, they claim, could not really have had extended discourse and contact with the risen Christ. They just write it out from their set of presuppositions. It just couldn't have happened. The resurrection appearances, and remember these theorists hold that these were just visions, happened, they say, weeks after the crucifixion. But no, the New Testament documents say that the first resurrection appearances of Jesus were on the third day after his crucifixion. The vision theorists must deny this. The reason? Because if the resurrection were not in historical fact, the tomb would have been investigated and the whole thing exploded. But if the appearances happened weeks later, then it is more probable that something could have happened to make the investigation of the tomb unlikely. So they have to invent this out of thin air. The third thing of importance in all of this is the account in 1 Corinthians 15 with which we began as we read our text this evening. The book of 1 Corinthians was written approximately 25 years after the cross and resurrection took place. Paul speaks of receiving a tradition, receiving this information from others, including Peter and leaders of the early church. 
The account of the early church then, the primitive church as it is sometimes called, is quite out of accord with a vision hypothesis. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The same body that was laid in the tomb is the same body that came out of the tomb three days after the crucifixion. As Machen says, the bodily resurrection is the only resurrection that the New Testament knows. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says something else of great importance. He mentions the third day, which keeps coming up and stares us in the face. So the resurrection appearances did not just take place weeks later in Galilee, after the disciples had time to ruminate and become deeply moved and perhaps uh, uh, entranced. The resurrection appearances began in Jerusalem on the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus. Machen beautifully says, The mention of the third day and the primitive Jerusalem tradition interposes a mighty barrier against the whole attempt to explain the appearances of the risen Christ as hallucinations experienced at a time when it would be too late to investigate the tomb of Jesus to see whether the resurrection had really happened or not. And the consistent witness of the New Testament is this third day event. Well, that brings us to what we'll call theory three, which really is other theories, just to mention in passing. Here I simply mention that other theories have developed and have been more or less popular over time. Especially, I have in mind, theories that relate to the history of religion school of thought. The idea here is that it is claimed that various religions have resurrections from the dead, and therefore Christianity is not unique in its claim that Jesus rose from the dead. One such theory actually claimed a derivation from Babylonian myth. Now, I don't plan to say much about this. James Orr, I think, summarized it well when he said, you do not get rid of facts by simply proposing to give an artificial mythological explanation to them. The Gospels, the Acts, and the Epistles will stand as containing the well-attested accounts of the church of apostolic days had to give of its own origin. These accounts had not the remotest relation to Gilgamesh epics, nature myths of the Egyptian, Greek, or Persian mysteries, or pagan speculations of any kind, but were narratives of plain facts known to the whole church and attested by the apostles and others who were themselves eyewitnesses of most of the things which they related. So then we come to theory four. Theory four, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Now, the term theory here does not imply falsehood or even mere probability. Indeed, we're speaking of the true explanation of the facts. It is clear that the disciples were not deceivers. It is clear that they were not deceived. Well, if they were not deceivers and they were not deceived, we are left with the explanation that the New Testament gives. Jesus rose bodily from the tomb. The bottom line on all of this is that some people just will not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Dead people, they say, just don't rise from the dead. 
Well, let me say two things here about that. First, the reason that men do not believe that the supernatural can happen is that they are naturalists. That is to say, their worldview is determined by matter, motion, energy, and the thought that nothing else can exist in the world. The issue here is one of fundamental heart presuppositions. The believer and the unbeliever will not come to the same judgments about the content of the Bible. The best we can do is to show that the position of the unbeliever has no basis and that his use of the data of the New Testament is not permissible on internal grounds. The Holy Spirit alone can regenerate and clear the way for acceptance of the deity of Christ, the resurrection of our Lord, and all that comes with it. No one is neutral. Our thinking is determined by presuppositions of the heart. Remember how Dr. Van Til used to speak of the human mind as a buzzsaw. Now, you know what a buzzsaw is. You have a buzzsaw. The buzzsaw is set at a certain angle. And so whatever wood you put into the saw will be cut at that angle. If you wish the buzzsaw to cut at a different angle, you have to reset the buzzsaw so that it begins to cut the wood at that angle. Well, the human mind is in its fallenness set at a certain angle, and it's going to cut the data of this world from a certain angle. It takes the Spirit of God in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to reset the mind, just as the buzzsaw is reset, so that we now can begin to cut the data of this world appropriately. Now, the second thing to say about all of this, to lean on Machen once again, is that when we're dealing with the resurrection of Jesus, we're dealing with a special case indeed. Men do not rise from the dead, you say. But when we take into account what the New Testament as a whole says about Jesus, we are not dealing with just a man. When we understand that, then it becomes plain that it would be contrary to good sense not to believe that he rose from the dead. That when we see the whole picture of who Jesus is, we must confess death could not keep its prey. Now, I would encourage this. If you have doubts about Jesus' resurrection, do not attempt to look at this matter in isolation from the New Testament witness to Jesus as a whole. But read the Gospels. Read the entirety of the New Testament. And see this matter of the resurrection in connection with the whole picture that is represented there. Will someone here do that that's never done it before? And when you do that, I think you will find what Dr. Van Til calls the impossibility of the contrary. That is, the great argument for these things is that given who God is and given his revelation in the scriptures and how Jesus is represented to us in the Bible, it is impossible for them not to be and to have happened. Now let me make two other comments, concluding comments, two comments, extended comments, but my last. Let me make two important points. The first thing I want to, to make, really important point, probably more important than some of you even will realize, is the inseparable relationship between history and faith and how the relationship between history and faith must be maintained by the Christian church. Without this connection, there is no Christianity. I'm often amazed at how those calling themselves evangelical have sold the past 
on this essential point. What is essential about the resurrection of Jesus? That essential thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that it was historical. None of this that you get from Schleiermacher, you can separate, you can separate the Christian faith from this question of history. None of that. The essential thing about the resurrection is that it happened in time and space in history. That is, the resurrection was a fact. Machen pointed out how in the work of Robert E. Speer, the Evangelical Secretary for the Board for Foreign Missions of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, this was back in the 20s and 30s, that in Speer's thinking there were two strains. On the one hand, Speer held that Jesus rose from the dead. On the other, there was an emphasis on religious experience that was so akin to modernism that the evangelical conviction was not determinative for his view of missions and these contradictory views that he held side by side led to the result of a vagueness that opened more the door to out and out Christ rejection in that denomination. But as Machen points out in his essay, History and Faith, the liberal Jesus cannot account for the Jesus of the New Testament for these reasons. First, the divine and human are too closely interwoven in the New Testament account. To reject the one is to reject the other. You can't say, I'll have a human Jesus, but not the deity of Christ. They are inseparable in the New Testament account. Secondly, the liberal Jesus is a monstrosity who never lived. It actually is a construct of human imagination. And thirdly, the liberal Jesus cannot account for the origin of the Christian church. Let us not then forget the inseparable relation between history and faith. As evangelicals today look more and more like old-fashioned modernists, let us keep close to this reality. Another issue relating to history and faith is the modern bifurcation between the noumenal and the phenomenal. And most of you who have been in philosophy classes are tracking with me. If others aren't, that's fine. But it's the viewpoint that comes from Immanuel Kant, the Kantian bifurcation of reality. This is a question of epistemology, how we know what we know. And here we must challenge this false construct of reality with the Bible's own teaching about what is real. I simply mention this because it's behind much of the so-called modern theology that we find in pulpits today. And that, to my view, no one has dealt with it better than Cornelius Van Til. Now I have a second point, a second thing. I said two comments, right? This is the second the second observation I make relates to the reliability of the New Testament documents. Time and again, what have we done? We've said, well, here are these viewpoints out here, but here's what the New Testament documents have to say. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 1 Corinthians, Acts, and other places in the New Testament. This has been mentioned already, this reliability of the New Testament documents, and will prepare us for a look next time at the... New Testament characterization of the resurrection in the biblical data. But Christians must not be intimidated by the secular view that the New Testament documents are not reliable. Some of you who are about to go off to college and university for the first time, you'll sit in classes, religion classes, and classes on the Bible and so forth as I did. But I didn't just take one course in a liberal institution in my undergraduate work. I majored in it. I sat under 
radical liberals for four years in my undergraduate work. That was my major. I did it intentionally. I couldn't, like Machen, go to Germany, perhaps, and sit under the great liberals, but I could sit under men who had been trained, liberal men calling themselves Christians, who denied the resurrection of Jesus or other essentials of the faith. I could sit under them, trained at Candler, trained at Yale, trained at Harvard. That I could do. Christians must not be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by these things. By the secular view that the New Testament documents are not reliable. When a classical scholar such as F.F. Bruce comments that, quote, When I was invited from time to time to address audiences of six formers and university students on the trustworthy trustworthiness of the New Testament in general and of the gospel records in particular, my usual line was to show that the grounds for accepting the New Testament as trustworthy compared very favorably with the grounds on which classical students accepted the authenticity and credibility of many ancient documents. Now, such expression of British, well, it's just British understatement, really. Such an expression of British understatement must help to raise this question. Why, then, do so many question what a classical scholar such as Bruce says is well established? And the answer is in the New Testament itself. We are not neutral about this matter, but as fallen human beings, we have an axe to grind. The reason that human beings oppose the virgin birth of Christ, the physical resurrection from the dead, the reliability of the New Testament documents is not because they sometimes somehow have the ability to look at things objectively and we don't. The reason is because the fallen human heart hates the God who is and does not want to submit to his revelation. We have an axe to grind. The denials of the Bible's reliability of the resurrection of Jesus in particular do not happen in a vacuum, but show us that the coming of Jesus, the cross, and resurrection indeed were needed, essential, to save man from his rebellion against God. So that if there is someone here tonight and you have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ and have not believed in Christ as Savior, the New Testament documents are true, they are God's Word, and they call you to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to believe in, trust in, this risen Christ. Well, I hope this method is helpful to you and that you won't mind that I deviate for a few Sunday nights. And next time, we will turn briefly to what the New Testament says about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the New Testament data itself.